Eagles Entertainment. You do a lot of listening in your lifetime. You listen to your doctor, your spouse, and this podcast. It's time you listen to your body. At NovaCare Rehabilitation, our expert therapist can help you get rid of your aches and pain to get you back to what you love. Go to NovaCare.com to learn more. I was shocked. It just happened out of the blue. It hit us hard, but it didn't surprise me because I know how hard he's always worked. At a press conference on January 10th, 1983, with tears in his eyes, after an emotional seven seasons as a head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, Coach Vermeil announced he was stepping down. He just said, one day I just woke up, so I'm retired. When he said it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, right, Coach, you ain't retired. Because he loved the game that much. And uh, next thing I know, it was a press conference that night, and he retired. I'm like, God dang it. To Carl Hairston, who was also in his seventh season with the Eagles, it seemed like his coach made a rash decision. But the famous Vermeil work ethic had taken its toll. The value of hard work instilled by his dad, Big Louie, in his family's Calistoga garage was impossible to shake. At age 46, Vermeil decided he needed to take some time away from the game that had become an unhealthy obsession. Ray Didinger was at the press conference. To see him standing up there at the podium and seeing how much pain he was in and how hard this decision was, but saying, I, I have to do this for myself and my family. Fans were surprised because he didn't seem like the kind of guy that would ever just quit. But I think that when people saw the press conference and you saw the way he just kind of laid it out there that I'm just burnt out. I hope that people can understand. Citing burnout in the 80s was almost unheard of. In fact, no one had really heard this term before a psychologist, Herbert Freudenberger, wrote a book about the phenomenon. Freudenberger defined burnout to be a state of mental and physical exhaustion caused by one's professional life. Sound familiar? Sitting behind his desk now, a serene-looking coach for meal can see how his emotional honesty impacted others. The positive came out, I think, it enlightened a lot of people in high-pressure situations. I did a lot of speaking, and I still do, and I enjoy the speaking engagements. I can't tell you how many times Big-time executive. I mean, major New York Stock Exchange corporations. After my speech, Coach, can you spend an hour talking? And they're going through the same thing. They're going through the same thing. Welcome to Return Game, Coach Vermeil, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. In this episode, Coach Vermeil retires, leaves retirement, wins a Super Bowl, and retires again. It's packed, so let's get into it. This concept of retirement didn't last long for our hardworking former coach. All of a sudden, I go into broadcasting right away. I do a mock game with Pat Summerall. I knocked them dead. They hired me. Another benefit of his new gig with CBS. So I go from making $75,000 a year to $150,000 a year working 16 weekends. I said, wow, this is stealing for a living. It was fun. I enjoyed it. So Mr. Vermeil was back in football, but now he was the color analyst for college football games. He had helped UCLA win that memorable Rose Bowl over Ohio State. So it was a good fit. 
Plus, he found an ideal situation. He blended his love of the game with a more manageable work schedule, and that meant more time with the family. It was fun. I got to see my grandchildren. I got to go hunting with my sons and do things that other fathers do. Go, go to graduations, be the chaperone of the senior ball. Once I became a big-time coach, I neglected a lot of those things. And thank heavens for Carol. She did a wonderful job. Welcome, everybody, with Dick Vermeil. I'm Brett Musburger. Dick, we came to town. Huge changes with the Buffalo defense. Playing much better all season. And you have to credit John Butler. I'm Brett Musburger. I'm a broadcaster and work frequently with Dick Vermeil. An icon in his own right, Musburger was impressed with the legendary Vermeil work ethic. Here's the big problem that most, and I'm going to say NFL broadcasters have, players and coaches alike. When they first come in, as an analyst, they know a lot about the league and they know a lot about the personnel that's out there. And so it's very easy for them to talk about the league and what's going on. But what I stress, and I did not have to stress this with Coach Vermeil, about two or three years into that job, you're going to have to work for a living. I thought that was a very logical next step for him was to get into broadcasting because he's very smart and he's very articulate, very handsome, you know, looked good on camera. He was perfect for television. And besides being so super good looking, Ray also points out one of the most important attributes Dick brought to his new role. He so loves the X's and O's part of the game. I mean, he's very much a football wonk. Ray says that Brent and Dick had an easy rapport in the booth, each man doing what they did best. Brent's a smart guy. Brent works really well with his color analyst in that he knows what the analyst's strengths are. So Brent knew all he really had to do was give the score, give the down and distance, and then say, coach, take it away. And for 14 years at both ABC and CBS, that's exactly what Dick did. He wasn't always paired with Musburger, but as he spent time in the booth, he still couldn't shake some of those coach for meal tendencies. He remained curious, interrogating coaches about their playbooks, exhaustively preparing for the games, and researching on-the-field talent. And did he miss coaching or think about making a grand return? Well, you know, I was approached about a job all but one year, all 14 years I was out. Once, while visiting his dad who was dying of pancreatic cancer, Dick got a tempting offer from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' Hugh Culverhouse, who told Dick he could write his own contract. Dick asked if he could think about it and call Culver House back. I sat down next to my dad over there on the couch. I said, Dad, I told him the situation. He said, in his old gruff way, do you need the aggravation? And I said, no. Then he said, you better not do it. <laughs> and I didn't do it. I talked with Jeffrey Lurie. I had been out of coaching for, at that time, 12 years. And I just didn't feel that I could recover fast enough to do the kind of job in my home city. He went on a different direction. He made the right decision. But that stimulated my thinking. That stimulated my thinking. Carl Hairston retired from playing in 1990 and moved into scouting and coaching. As his career progressed, he watched his former coach on TV. After all these years passed by, I said, well, he'll never get back into coaching because his mindset then drifted away with that aggression. After 15 years, was there an NFL team that would be able to entice Coach Vermeil to say farewell to a sweet broadcasting gig and head back to the grind of full-time coaching? 
Rams are no strangers to moving around. In their first season in 1936, they were the Cleveland Rams. After 10 years, they left the hominess of Ohio for the bright lights and glitz of Los Angeles. At the end of the 1994 season, in a move that upset wide receiver Isaac Bruce, the team decamped from L.A. to St. Louis, Missouri. To be honest, I was a bit disappointed in the move initially. I had previously spent two of my college years in Los Angeles. Uh, I kind of fell in love with that city. Even the front office staff had to go with the team. Rick Smith was a PR man in the NFL for close to 30 years. He was with the Los Angeles Rams when they relocated. St. Louis hadn't had a professional football team since the Cardinals moved to Arizona in 1987, seven years before. Rick says the reception was next level because there was some pent-up excitement from diehard football fans. It was like rock stars had arrived. We were welcomed. I remember we played our early two or three early games at the old Bush Stadium baseball park, and uh, it was jammed to the rafters. There were people sitting in the end zone. It was a very exciting time. Sadly, on the field, there was nothing to be too stoked about. Sure, the new St. Louis Rams played above expectations and even started the 1995 season strongly. But by week eight, getting a win was tough. And in the 1996 season, the team once again posted more losses than wins. Something had to change. At the end of the season, head coach Rich Brooks was fired. For there to be an opening for a head coach in the NFL, a team needs to lose a lot, or at least enough for the owner to step in and make a change. If a coach is winning, status quo, keep winning. So it's a place we've been before with Coach Vermeil. You've got a losing team, mixed results on draft picks, and players who don't believe in the system. And then the Rams had offered me the job every time it had been open. And I said no. Playing hard to get might also be in the Coach Vermeil manual. You might remember in episode three how quickly he dismissed Jim Murray when he spoke to him about the open position with the Eagles. This time was no different. Coach Ramil needed a little buttering up. And just like Murray, the Rams president, John Shaw, was up to the challenge of getting Dick to sign a contract. He invited the hesitant coach in for a meeting. I went in and talked with him, and I liked what he said. And uh, they were going to pay me a, a nice salary. And uh, so I came home. Uh, next morning, he was supposed to call me at 9 o'clock. He called me at 9 o'clock. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to take the job. So I hung up, told Carol, Carol, we're going back into coaching. New city, new struggling team. Coach Ramil loves this, right? He knew there was going to be some pressure. Fans and doubters speculating. Did he still have that magic? Do I think there'll be a different feeling? I can only be myself. I, you know, it won't be any different than the feeling I had when I walked at Hillsdale High School before the championship game against Cappuccino on Thanksgiving Day. It would be a real mistake for me to be go in and think, gosh, here I am back in the National Football League for the second time. I better be different than I was last time. Hey, what you see is what you get. His next step, building his coaching staff. It's like Gotham City when they need Batman. Vermeil projected his own bat signal. By the end of the day, I called Wilbert Montgomery. Told him I was going to make a football coach out of him. I got Dick Corey, who had worked for me, come with me. I need some help. I talked to John Bunning, Carl Harrison, guys that played for me. He said, you guys should come with me. I need help. Coach Ramil called me and says, I want you to join me in St. Louis. 
in my mind, I'm like, for what? You ain't, you ain't come out of retirement. Then I realized he was coming out of retirement. That next day I saw he's coming out of retirement. It sounds like it was a no-brainer for Carl Harrison and all the other guys. No one wanted to miss out on an opportunity to learn from the master. They all came to St. Louis to see if, as a group, they could turn this team around. Mike Jones was a linebacker. He played with the Raiders, another team famous for moving, from 1991 to 1996. Mike signed with the Rams in 1997. And then when I signed the contract, he gets up from his distance and he kind of sticks his arms out. I'm looking like, does this guy want to hug me? That year, it was a rocky start for the Vermeil era in St. Louis. The team racked up just five wins. Ouch. Did players like Mike have reservations about playing for a man who had been away from coaching for more than a decade? It never crossed my mind that he'd been out for 12 years because he had been involved with the game. He just wasn't coached. I mean, he was commentating games, and I knew he was very active in football. I knew he was, and just a little history, just doing a little history on him, how well he had done at UCLA, turning the program around, and what he had did at Philadelphia. Another underdog team? Coach Ramil, so on brand. 1998, Bill Clinton was president. The Chicago Bulls and Dick's brother, Al, who was the strength and conditioning coach, won their sixth NBA championship in eight years. It was Michael Jordan's last game as a Bull. Google was founded. Titanic and Mulan were popular films. In St. Louis, Coach Ramil and his staff maintained their focus. We had a couple bad years under uh, Coach Vermeil as he was building his program. The media was restless, but he was resolute. Dick just kept pounding away. I mean, acquiring players, getting doing well in the draft, building his program. Rick Smith's perspective is interesting. After all, he was the man who handled PR and had to put the spin out there. Little did Rick or Coach Ramil know the Rams were about to make a decision that would become an inspiring story worthy of yet another movie starring a Hollywood version of the man, Coach Ramil. We signed him as a favor, favor, and we needed another quarterback for training camp for a friend, okay? Yes, you heard right. NFL legend Kurt Warner was signed as a favor, but the team didn't know yet what they had. So we brought him in, worked him out. I like to work out. Kurt will tell you, it wasn't a spectacular workout. It was just, hey, we worked him out. He could throw the ball. Brought him in, and I love those kind of kids anyway. So we signed him and sent him to Europe. He played well over there. So with Kurt Warner in Europe, the Rams racked up an abysmal season. They had finished last in the NFC West. They only had four wins. But remember, it took some hard yards, serious work, and a couple of rough seasons before the Eagles saw improvements. So the next year... Rick Smith dared to dream. Going into that 1999 season, which was Dick's third year, we had a little bit of uh, enthusiasm or optimism. We figured we could at least be 500 or maybe a little bit better. By 1999, Mike Jones had played a lot of football. He says that at the start of that season, a wave of excitement was washing over the team. I thought we caught some lightning in the bottle. I'm going to be honest with you. Trent Green was phenomenal. We got a Hall of Famer in Marshall Falk for a six-round draft pick. So that was a steal. So you have all these things coming together. And before the season started, I thought we were a playoff team. I'll just be honest with you. Coach Vermeil had found another one of his guys in Trent Green, 
a quarterback who had bounced around the NFL since 1993. He had even spent a year in Canada. Trent loved the game and wanted to keep playing. In 1998, he finally got the opportunity to impress when he was playing in Washington, D.C. Trent caught the eye of Coach Ramil, who asked for a meeting and made his pitch. Number one is he, he knew the emotional part of it, me growing up in St. Louis. The Rams had been the losingest team of the 90s. He said, you know, we need a quarterback. It'd be great to have a hometown kid coming back and, you know, helping turn it around. I knew what pieces were in place. They had a really good defense. They had some great talent on offense. Trent was now a Ram. He had a new four-year contract, financial security, and he was ready to work. Coach Ramil led Isaac Bruce, Mike Jones, Trent Green, and Kurt Warner, now returned from Europe and playing back up to Green, into their season. I was excited to, to move up to that number two spot and, as they say, be one play away from having an opportunity to play in the National Football League. But I don't think any of us expected it to play out like it did or as quickly as it did. After losing the first two games of the preseason, they geared up to play the San Diego Chargers at home. Trent Green was having an amazing game. He completed 11 passes for 166 yards and a 52-yard pass to Isaac Bruce. I remember having the discussion with Coach Vermeil. I went to the sideline. The Chargers had the ball. It was late in the first half. He came up to me and he said, you know what? I think you're good. I've seen enough. We're doing well offensively. I'm going to get Kurt in and let him get some snaps before halftime. And I just say, Coach, I'll play as long as you want me to play. I know we're trying to build something here. If you want me to play more, I'll play more. And if you want to take me out, I said, you know, it's your call. I said, the offense is, has done really well here in the first half. Trent ran back onto the field, confident in the football he was playing. Finally, he could show those other teams who had traded him or cut him he could lead this offense. So we went in, didn't think anything about it, complete, completely, and then, and then the injury happened. Green deep drop this time, throws to the right side, wide open and out of bounds is Tony Small, the rookie out of Georgia. And Green went down hard and is not getting up. Everything changed. And that looks bad. You do not want to see this if you're the Rams, Barry, for the, for the very reason that this changes the whole course of their season. You got a starting quarterback, and you're going for his legs in a third preseason game. You say you stumble, whatever. There's certain things I thought... Could have been done better. We'll just leave it at that. Trent Green was hit by Rodney Harrison, a guy he knew from his stint with the Chargers. He tore a ligament in his left knee. He was out. The season appeared over before it started. Even Coach Ramil was at a loss. The entire team was emotionally distraught. I mean, you could feel it. And we all were. Players on hands and knees banging the turf. I'm guys in tears. They were really upset because they they saw him and what he could do and we all knew we were going to be a good football team and uh, so the decision comes what do we do they were counting on him paid him a lot of money and he's played very very well for them yeah and with all due respects to uh, to kurt warner it's it's a pretty sizable drop off you bet it is i know in the back of their mind it was like well he's our number two and he's not gonna have to play you know so we've got time to kind of groom him and then all of a sudden This injury happened so quickly, and it became time for them to really decide what they wanted to do and how much they really believed in me. And this was another one of those moments where Coach Ramil never seemed to hesitate. We spent time thinking about uh, going out and see what was available in the open market. 
One coach had been at the Raiders, Mike White, and his quarterback there had retired. And we thought about going after him. Uh, and it came down to Mike March and I and the offensive coach saying, you know something? We're going to go with Kurt Warner. When you're a guy like myself, you find yourself in that moment for the first time. You want to believe that everybody believes in you, but you're not sure. And you also understand why everybody would be unsure. Like, I, you know, I wasn't oblivious to the idea that, hey, I'd never really played at this level and nobody really knew who I was. So it wasn't so much that. But it's just you're always looking for those people that say, hey, I believe this guy can do it. And Coach Vermeil believed. September 12, 1999, it was game time. Keep in mind, Kurt Warner had never started an NFL game. In fact, he played in one game as a reserve. And now, here he was, about to take the field. At this point in time in my career, I'm, I'm 28 years old. And many people said that I'd never be here and would never have this opportunity. And here I am running out of the tunnel as a chance to start in the National Football League. So there was a gamut of emotions that were running through my mind at that particular time. Excited, anxious, just wanted to get out there and play. We opened our season at home against Baltimore, which was a pretty good team. And I remember, I think it was in the second quarter, Kurt threw a beautiful pass down the middle of the field. And that was really, you know, hey, that's pretty good. It was pretty good. Kurt and the Rams beat the Ravens. Then we won another game, and then we won another game, and then we found ourselves playing against uh, the San Francisco 49ers. The San Francisco 49ers were to the St. Louis Rams what the Dallas Cowboys were to the Vermeil-era Eagles. If they were going to win the division, the Rams needed to take down the 49ers. And going into this Week 5 game, San Francisco had beaten the Rams 17 times. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, Philly fans? Some of the guys that had been there for a while, guys like Isaac Bruce, they would tell us about 49er week. And he's like, 49er week is, is different. There's a different energy. There's a different focus. And, you know, I mentioned Isaac Bruce because he had been one of the elder statesmen that had been with the Rams when they were in L.A. and then made the transition. And Isaac in that game was, was unbelievable. I think he scored three touchdowns in the first quarter of that game. And, you know, it was just kind of Isaac's way of going, okay, A, we're not the same old laners. We went on to beat them fairly handedly in that game. And I think that was when everybody started to kind of look and go, you know, maybe, maybe we are, you know, one of those teams. Maybe we do have a chance to compete this year. For his part, Bruce, who at this point had caught a fair number of passes from a variety of quarterbacks, was beginning to see the potential in Warner. Kurt's a, a wonderful talent. Very hard worker, competitive, a guy that's willing to uh, sacrifice for the team, put himself out there, and also to be able to lead by following. So I felt like once he got in that puddle and had that position, he fit right in. So I think the special part of it were his just, just his intangibles. Uh, everything that he had been groomed to do when that opportunity came, he flourished in it. Kurt Warner to Isaac Bruce. It wouldn't be long before that pairing made history. Well, the Rams came out of the 49ers week victorious. The score, 42-20. A pretty good win after 17 straight losses. They cruised through the first six weeks undefeated, 
putting up scores 35 to 7 against the Falcons, crushing the Bengals 38 to 10. You can see why pundits began to call the Rams offense the greatest show on turf. But then came the Tennessee Titans. Remember that team. They'll be back. The Rams fell to Tennessee 24-21. The team went on to lose the next game as well. Were these signs of more losses to come? Not so fast. By week 10, no one could stop the Rams. The Rams came to Philly for their season finale. St. Louis rested a number of their starters. I'm going to let Kurt Warner tell you what he remembers from his trip to the vet. I remember going to Philly, and, and obviously you hear a lot about what Dick had done in Philly and uh, you know what he's trying to do in St. Louis. And I remember uh, when we got there and we were driving to the stadium, and I remember looking up and seeing a big billboard that said, good luck, coach, and had Dick Vermeil's face on it. And I was like, what's going on here? Like, this is the opposing team. Why is there a billboard of our coach in the middle of Philadelphia cheering us on as we go to play our final game against their team? But I think it speaks to the type of impact that Dick Vermeil had when he was in Philadelphia. The Eagles won 38-31. And one more anecdote from Mike Jones, because, hey, it's about the Eagles and our win. You know what's ironic about that? Andy Reid was my offensive line coach at University of Missouri. I didn't want to lose, but if there's anybody to lose to, could have been a better man than Andy Reid. The Rams had secured home field advantage for their first postseason showing. The Minnesota Vikings were coming to town. It was a high-scoring showdown. The Rams lost the lead going into the half but came out to score 35 in the second half. Bam! They won the game to advance. The greatest show on turf moves on. In a rematch of the 1979 championship game, it was the Rams versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This game was the complete opposite of the Vikings game. The Rams trailed the Bucs 6-5 with five minutes left in the game. No, this was not a baseball game between the Cardinals and the Rays. But Vermeil's team, thanks to a late Warner to Ricky Prohl touchdown connection, won the game 11-6. Someone's going to make a play and put their team in the Super Bowl. Warner going deep. Touchdown, touchdown. Ricky Prohl in the corner. Their lowest scoring game of the season and their first NFC Championship win since 1979. Now it was on to the Super Bowl. Coach Ramil says he learned his lesson from that tough Eagles loss against the Raiders. He tweaked his approach preparing for this Super Bowl, but he had some help from the league. We had no bye. It's one of the only Super Bowls ever played where there was no bye. We won the NFC Championship game on Sunday afternoon. The next day at 3 o'clock, the entire team is flying to Atlanta for the Super Bowl preparation. Like I tell people, I just didn't have enough time to screw them up. Always so modest. We won Sunday, and we were on a plane Monday to go to Atlanta. The biggest thing that I remember is, you know, you always dream of playing in the Super Bowl and going to some warm destination and a beautiful game under the sun. And I remember all week long, there was an ice storm in Atlanta. Families were having trouble getting in. We were having trouble going to our practices because of the ice all over. It was freezing cold outside. And just remember thinking, Okay, this is not what I had planned. Remember back to week eight of the regular season when the Rams fell to the Titans? 
Well, they were facing each other again for the NFL championship. As a team, I felt like we were prepared to play. We knew the ins and outs, everything that the Tennessee Titans like to do as far as offensively and also defensively. This Super Bowl experience sounds eerily familiar. I was so confident this football team was unbeatable. That the only way anybody could beat us is for us to beat ourselves. And I really, really sincerely believe that. I've never went into a bigger game more confident and more at ease within a critical, tough situation. Great confidence in my coaching staff. Great belief in my players. You have to love Coach Vermeil's consistency. The coaching philosophy in action, even though it had been nearly two decades between Super Bowl games. Kickoff was scheduled for 6.25 p.m. on January 30th, 2000 in the Georgia Dome. Welcome to Atlanta, host city of the 1996 Summer Olympics. This week, Atlanta could have hosted the Winter Olympics. Icy and cold outside all week long and again today, but warm and toasty under the Georgia Dome as the crowd settles in for Super Bowl 34. I have a very good friend that played in the Super Bowl in 89. The guy I played under. He told me he was hyperventilating. I'm like, I'm looking like, man, why are you hyperventilating before a game? And I am dead serious. I'm in a tunnel, and I can feel myself breathing harder like I'm doing the exact same thing. They announced our offense before the Super Bowl. And I remember myself and Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce and Dick Vermeil were the last four people that were introduced. And I remember Dick kind of pulling us into a huddle and just giving us some perspective on this moment and how far we had come and, you know, how that group of leaders were responsible for a big part of, of helping us get to this moment. And now it was up to us to go lead our guys and bring home the Super Bowl championship. It didn't really get real for me until when the introductions happened. When you're on one of the one of the most prolific offenses ever to play and have an opportunity to be introduced at Super Bowl 34, you know, that made it really real to me and just let me know that my dreams were happening right before my eyes. The Rams got onto the scoreboard first. Jeff Wilkins hit a 27-yard field goal, followed by two more field goals to grab a 9-0 lead. But it was anyone's game. The teams head to their locker rooms. The halftime show in 2000, Christina Aguilera, Enrique Iglesias, Phil Collins, and Tony Braxton performed. Back from halftime, the Rams scored. They increased their lead to 16-0. Three receivers to the right. Warner goes over. So, you know, as much as we felt the game was in hand for a great period, especially early in the game, all of us were still kind of like, we need to put them away. Like, we need to finish this thing because 16 points is, is just not enough in a Super Bowl. You don't feel comfortable, you know, only being up by basically two scores in a Super Bowl. Kurt was right. The team was playing a strong game, but it was too close. The Rams needed to stay focused, especially when... Here come the Titans. And they start mounting their comeback. At about 13 minutes left in the game, that's when the roller coaster started. That's when they started moving the ball. We had some struggles on offense. We had some struggles on defense. George again. George breaking tackles into the end zone. With just over two minutes to go, they score and tie the football game up. Eddie George scored two touchdowns. 
and then Al Del Greco even the score at 16. Vermeil fans everywhere were probably on the edge of their seat. Every Philly fan was cheering on Coach Vermeil. I can say that for a fact because I was one of them. As a young quarterback, every time you watch the Super Bowl, you go play in the front yard, and you're the one that's always throwing the touchdown pass to win the Super Bowl. So here we are, two-some left on the clock. Ball's going to be in my hands. Coach Vermeil comes over to me and just says, hey, you've played this out in your front yard a million times. You couldn't write a better script. Now go finish this thing. I get on the field, throw the pass to Isaac. Isaac adjusts and makes the catch and turns it into a touchdown. Clark pounding at the 27-yard line. Warner to throw. Going deep downfield. Adjusting for it is Isaac Bruce. And Isaac Bruce threads his way for a touchdown. 73 yards. It's the dream that anyone's ever played the sport of football. I can imagine all the, the people that have put on the helmet, put on shoulder pads, have imagined themselves scoring the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. And uh, for me to have the opportunity to do that, it was just a surreal moment for me and my teammates. And really, I was racing to the end zone as fast as I could so that I can celebrate with my team and my teammates. But cool it on the celebrations. Sure, the Rams take the lead, but there is still more than two minutes left on the clock. So while they're up seven, the Titans weren't going to just roll over for the Rams. This is a real nail-biter, folks. Two minutes can be an eternity, especially with the stakes of a Super Bowl. It was time for the defense to shine. This was as dramatic as it gets. Just to set the scene for you. Rams are up seven. Five seconds left. Ball on their own 10-yard line. And the Titans with all kinds of momentum. Could they stop them? Could this finally be Coach Vermeil's moment? From the 10, probably the final play of the game. It is caught by Dyson. Can he get in? McNair connects with Kevin Dyson, and it appears he might get into the end zone for a game-tying touchdown. Enter Mike Jones. I was forced enough, you know, I planted, I made a play on the ball, and everyone asked how did I stop him. I'm like, I put my hand in the right place, same thing they teach us all the time, and I hit his leg and he fell like a tree. Now, it wasn't as close as everyone think it is. It was, it was about two yards instead of one yard from the goal line, but it was something that we worked on all the time, and this so happened to be the last play of the Super Bowl to win the game. So it was a, a play you do all the time, and that's kind of what everyone knows what I am. I try and show up and do what I'm supposed to all the time when I was playing, and you know, and they could rely on me to do what I'm supposed to do, and that was just what I did. Some say Mike Jones made the play of the game with perhaps the greatest tackle in Super Bowl history to keep Dyson out of the end zone as time expired. After the game, Kurt Warner was named Super Bowl MVP, something he never dreamt would be possible. One thing that we all came to realize about Dick Vermeil throughout the course of that season was what he did and and why he coached was because he loved his players and he wanted what was best for his players. And he wasn't afraid to tell people that he loved us. 
We've all seen a league of our own where it's like, there's no crying in baseball. And I think everybody felt like there's no saying I love you in football. That's just not what we do. It's a tough man sport. We don't say that. Well, Dick had no problem saying that. And he wanted us all to know how much he appreciated us and how happy he was for us in that moment. And that was really what the final speech was about is guys, I, I love you. And I love this team and I loved being a part of it. And thank you all for allowing me to be a part of this incredible journey. On that team, here are the players who made it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Isaac Bruce, Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, Orlando Pace, and the newest member, their coach, Dick Vermeil. That's a lot of gold jackets. It was the perfect ending. Coach Ramil wrapped everything up with a diamond-encrusted Super Bowl ring. That should have been enough. And sure enough, once again, Coach announced his retirement. But this time, it was for good, right? Then he gets a call from an old friend, and he just can't say no. That's next time on Return Game, Coach Ramil, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. Thanks for listening. You do a lot of listening in your lifetime. You listen to your doctor, your spouse, and this podcast. It's time you listen to your body. At NovaCare Rehabilitation, our expert therapist can help you get rid of your aches and pain to get you back to what you love. Go to NovaCare.com to learn more.